Hello and welcome to the Skeptical Christian Podcast, episode number five. I'm your host, Kyle Deming. This episode, we're going to take a look at the argument from non-belief, which is one of the most popular arguments against God's existence today. And for the book reviews, we're going to take a look at C.S. Lewis's classic work, Mere Christianity, and also a new book by physicist Victor Stanger titled, God, the Failed Hypothesis. And then for the audience question, we're going to see if atom decay and quantum uncertainty undermines the causal premise that everything which begins to exist has a cause. But before we get to any of that, let's take a brief look at the news. Richard Dawkins is continuing to have a big influence these days, as he was given a spot on Time Magazine's Top 100 Most Influential People. Uh, There was actually a bit of controversy because Michael Behe, author of Darwin's Black Box and an intelligent design proponent, wrote the brief write-up. In addition to writing The God Delusion, Dawkins has recently been very involved in the public scene promoting atheism, including his involvement in a three-man team arguing that we'd be better off without religion in a recent debate that took place in London. Another atheist stirring things up is Christopher Hitchens, who also participated in the debate just mentioned. Hitchens has written a book titled God is Not Great, and he has been in the news discussing his book both in mainstream media and on popular shows like The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. Hitchens' book seems to be another attempt to demonstrate that religion is harmful and intrinsically evil, up the same alley as Sam Harris's recent books as well as much of The God Delusion. Well, in other news, William Lane Craig, a well-known Christian theologian, philosopher, and apologist, has recently started up a new website at reasonablefaith.org. So, in addition to a plethora of articles and debates, Craig has started two new podcasts, which can be found at the site as well. And you should definitely check the site out. Uh, There's a lot of great content, and Craig is an excellent Christian scholar who has been very influential, actually, in my personal development as a Christian. Lastly, James Patrick Holding from Tectonics.org has now released a new book entitled The Impossible Faith, And this book is based off a popular article on his website where he explains the numerous things Christianity did wrong in order to be a successful religion. And so this includes having a savior who died on a cross, which was a despicable and dishonorable form of death in a society which valued honor as of primary importance. And also the large role played by women in the faith, who at the time held little or no social status. Although I haven't had a chance to read the book, Holding is another apologist who has had a big impact on me, and I definitely recommend this new book. And it can be found now at Amazon.com. Today I want to take a look at the argument from non-belief, also known as the problem of divine hiddenness. And it is a relatively new topic, actually, in the philosophy of religion. And the argument was first raised by J.L. Schellenberg, who argued that the existence of reasonable non-belief is inconsistent with God's existence. But a second version, primarily promoted by philosopher Theodore Drange, argues that the existence of non-belief per se is inconsistent with God's existence. And so Drange thinks that whether such non-belief is reasonable or not is irrelevant to the issue. Now, the second version of the argument, 
uh, the one offered by Drange, is more difficult to defeat because it does not rely on the additional assumption that non-belief is reasonable. And so in this episode, I will take a look at Drange's argument. And so if Drange's argument is shown to be mistaken, then Schellenberg's version will also be undermined. Now, Drange's formulation of the argument from non-belief is relatively complex, and so I will try to simplify it as much as possible. He begins by identifying a set of beliefs that God would have a reason to ensure that all people knew by the time of their physical deaths, including these three. One, there exists a being who rules the entire universe. Two, that being loves humanity. And three, humanity has been provided with an afterlife. So from here, Drange claims that one, God would be able to ensure that people knew these three facts. Two, he would want or desire it to be the case that people knew the facts. And three, he would not want anything else that conflicts with his desire to bring about everyone believing these facts. Now, as Drange himself recognizes, the hardest statement to defend is that God has no conflicting desires that override his desire that all people believe the three propositions. Now, most Christians would probably hold that God has the ability to cause most people to believe the three facts, and most would also say that, minimally, God desires people to believe the three facts, all things being equal. But are all things equal? And that is the question we must address. And so I would like to look at several considerations that I think tend to show that God may not have an overriding desire to ensure that all people believe the three facts mentioned by Drange. And so if this can be done, then the argument from non-belief will be undermined. Now the first thing I'd like to mention is the free will defense. Now as with the argument from evil, an important foundational response to the argument from non-belief is the free will defense. Now according to this defense, God values human free will and allows us to make real choices. And so therefore, though God may want people to believe the, the three facts, and though he may have the ability to bring it about that people believe the three facts, he may not want to interfere with free will. And since God does not wish to make people believe these facts, it is possible that some people will fail to accept them. Now, this response seems to me quite reasonable because free will is such a valuable thing. Without free will, humans would lack the very things that make them human, and they would essentially be little different from robots. Without free will, there is no possibility of genuine love. There is no possibility for people to affect themselves or the world around them for better or for worse. However, the bare existence of free will, it could be argued, is not necessarily all that important. For example, a man trapped in a small room for all eternity may have the free will to kick the walls or do jumping jacks, but this sort of freedom does not really seem to be very valuable. After all, he cannot interact with other free agents, nor can he improve or change his own situation in any way. And so, it is not the existence of free will per se that is valuable, but the existence of significant free will that really matters. And I think this is an important distinction to make because it helps us answer a common objection to the free will defense. Now, for example, according to Drange, God could bring about the situation where almost everybody believes the three facts without resorting to a violation of our free will strictly. If God constantly bombarded us with miracles, displays of his power, and personal revelation, arguably, most people would probably believe. 
So while God could cause most people to believe the three facts without violating free will, it is not clear that he could do so without violating significant free will. Belief in God would become trivial and easy. And now this is not to say that God provides no evidence of his existence or that he is completely hidden away. In fact, I believe that there is excellent evidence for God's existence. However, belief in God is not trivial like belief that the Son exists. It's a real and reasonable possibility that God has revealed himself to an adequate extent to ensure that humans can make significantly free decisions about what they believe. Blaise Pascal put it this way. He said, quote, It was not then right that he should appear in a manner manifestly divine and completely capable of convincing all men. But it was also not right that he should come in so hidden a manner that he could not be known by those who should sincerely seek him. He has willed to make himself quite recognizable by those, and thus willing to appear openly to those who seek him with all their heart, and to be hidden from those who flee from him with all their heart. He so regulates the knowledge of himself that he has given signs of himself visible to those who seek him, and not to those who seek him not. There is enough light for those who only desire to see, and enough obscurity for those who have a contrary disposition. Quote. Now, so if Pascal is right about this, then the free will defense is an adequate response to the argument from non-belief. God has made it so that belief in him is not insignificant. It's not trivial. It's a significant free decision that we have to make. The second consideration I want to look at is the quality of relationship. Now, although I will concede that minimally God desires for people to believe the three facts mentioned by Drange, from a Christian point of view, I don't think that this desire is enough to carry the argument. Now, according to Christian theology, God does not desire mere knowledge of him, but love of him. And indeed, this loving relationship is necessary for human satisfaction as well. And so thus, I would replace Drange's three facts with the following proposition. God desires the situation where all, or almost all, humans come to love him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, it's clear that, at least concerning Christian theology, this desire just mentioned is greater than the desire that all people believe the three facts mentioned by Drange. Moreover, it seems clear that people would not necessarily love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, even if they believed Drange's three facts. It is also clear that, while God might be able to ensure that most people accept Drange's three facts, it is not necessarily possible for God to ensure that most people love him without, again, a blatant interference with free will. A third consideration I want to look at is the nature of salvation and justice. Now, in, in Drange's argument from non-belief, it seems that one of the main reasons he believes God wants us to believe the three facts is that our salvation is dependent upon it. But yet, even if it is true that God's primary objective is to save the maximum number of people with no concern for the type or the quality of believer, then Drange's argument will still not work. Because according to Christian theology, belief in the three facts Drange mentions are not sufficient for salvation anyways. And so it is not clear that God really would have a strong overriding desire to ensure that all people accept the facts. Now, Drange does offer some arguments, both biblical and philosophical, 
which attempt to show that God really would have an overriding desire to ensure that everyone believes the three facts. He argues that, since belief in the facts is necessary for salvation, God should desire it. In order to love God, obviously you must know that he exists. In order to receive salvation, you must know that the afterlife exists, etc. But however, though belief in the three facts is necessary for salvation, it is clearly not sufficient for salvation. And so therefore, it seems entirely speculative to say that God should have an overriding desire for everyone to believe the three facts. Why would he, if this doesn't really improve the situation anyways? Now, God may desire that everyone believe the three facts, but he may only desire it insofar as such a situation increases the number of people saved. And so, therefore, Drange must demonstrate that it is likely the case that, if everyone believed the three facts, there would be a net increase of saved individuals in the world. But, however, the prospects for demonstrating such a thing to be the case are rather bleak. Well, consider that if everyone were forced to believe the three facts or were compelled to believe them because of constant miraculous displays of divine power, then they may accept Christ as their Savior, not out of love and respect for God, but for the merely practical reason of securing eternal reward. However, it is not clear if one really can be saved without sincere love and respect for God in the first place. And so it's not necessarily the case that more people would be saved if everyone accepted the three facts mentioned by Drange. Indeed, it seems to me quite likely that many people would fail to love God even if they knew the three facts. Many people, if they knew that God existed, would still not approve of the way he runs the universe. Now consider the fact that many people complain about the way the universe is run right now, whether or not they believe in God's existence. Atheists frequently claim that even if God existed, they would not worship him because they think that there is too much suffering in the world and that God is to blame. And so if everyone knew God existed, then they may despise him for the suffering they endure. They, might, they may hate him for failed prayers or for anything else they dislike about the world and about their lives. And so if many people make these types of complaints now, then why should we think that they would sincerely love God if they knew he existed? Well, in conclusion, Drange's argument from non-belief has several problems. Um, there are multiple overriding factors which could easily conflict with God's desire to ensure that everyone accepts Drange's three facts. Christian theology has a perfect answer to the problem of non-belief. It is not mere belief or factual knowledge that God desires, but a sincere, loving relationship that results in salvation. And moreover, God has given us significant free will to make important choices in our lives, and so therefore there is little reason to regard non-belief as evidence against Christian theism. All right, well now it's time for a couple of book reviews. C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, is widely known as one of the best works of Christian apologetics of all time. Adapted from a series of radio talks given in the 1940s, Lewis's book provides both a powerful defense of the Christian faith and an important reminder of the importance that faith should have in our lives. 
In the first portion of the book, Lewis defends the existence of God with a presentation of the moral argument, and he argues that all humans have a basic moral code which we know we should follow, even though we often fail to follow it. Lewis claims that without God, this prescriptive moral law simply does not make any sense. And this is certainly the most elegant presentation of the moral argument I have ever read, and Lewis writes with an engaging style that makes it enjoyable to read. In addition to defending the Christian faith and arguing for the existence of God, however, Lewis also spends several chapters discussing important issues of morality. His discussion of the vices and virtues of the Christian life is extremely rewarding. Now, I have never read a book that combined a rational defense of the Christian faith and a convicting message about morality as effectively as mere Christianity. And if there is one piece of Christian literature you should make sure to read, this is the one to look at. And so my rating for this book is five stars out of five. The next book I'd like to look at is God, the Failed Hypothesis. Victor Stanger is the author of this new popular atheistic book, released in late January of this year. In the book, Stenger aims to show that science, far from providing evidence for the existence of God, actually demonstrates that he does not exist. Now, although I did like the straightforward approach of the book, it loses much of its value because it does not go into nearly enough depth on any one topic. Stenger simply covers too much in too little space, and he ends up with very little substantive content, and many of the arguments are simply asserted, often with a footnote referencing the reader to read one of the author's other books. Well, this is fine if done occasionally, but in this book it is done so much that the book itself does not really accomplish very much. And another big problem with the book is that Stenger tries to avoid addressing philosophy in order to focus on science. However, this approach is flawed, both because science itself involves a good deal of philosophy, and also because philosophy, I feel, is a great support of theism. So, for example, when discussing whether there is evidence for a soul or, or any reality outside the physical world, Stenger addresses scientific discoveries concerning the correlation between brain states and conscious experience. However, he does not address the more interesting philosophical question of, why do we have felt conscious experience in the first place? Now, if Stenger discussed issues with a little more depth and was more careful with his philosophical thinking, then this book would be much more useful. As it is, though, the book is better than quite a bit of atheist literature out there, but ultimately a little bit disappointing. And so my rating for this book is two and a half stars out of five. Now it is time for the audience question. Parvinder asks, Is it possible to reconcile Adam Decay with the first premise of the Kalam argument? Now for those of you who are not familiar with this subject, the Kalam argument referred to here is an argument for the existence of God based on the existence of the universe. And it is the argument that was discussed at length in the second podcast episode. It has three premises which are the following. One, Everything which begins to exist has a cause. Two, the universe began to exist. And three, therefore, the universe has a cause. Now, as for the question, 
Some people challenge the first premise that everything which begins to exist has a cause, with a few supposed counterexamples that come up when talking about events that take place at the quantum level. Now, for example, atom decay happens, but as far as we know, it does not happen in a deterministic way. We can only identify the probability of a given atom decay event at a given time. We cannot predict absolutely when it occurs. Now, this is also related to the idea of the uncertainty of the location of a particle based on Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. Now, it is worth noting that some scientists and philosophers argue for the Bohmian interpretation or some similar interpretation of quantum mechanics in which so-called hidden variables account for the supposedly random, non-deterministic nature of quantum events. So if this type of interpretation is correct, then quantum events, including atom decay, certainly do not qualify as counters to the first premise. The Bohmian interpretation, however, is very controversial, and so I will simply assume that there are no hidden variables and quantum events are actually non-deterministic by nature. But even if this is the case, atom decay is still not actually an example of something beginning to exist without a cause. The decay of a certain atom is caused by the preceding state of the atom, whether or not anything about that state determined or necessitated that the decay should occur when it did. Atomic decay obviously depends on pre-existing states of the atom. Now, in the case of all quantum events, there are actually a bunch of physically necessary conditions that must obtain for the event to occur, even though these conditions are not sufficient for the event to happen. And so, we should say that atom decay has necessary conditions which are conditions required for the event to occur, even though it does not have sufficient conditions, meaning that there are no conditions that will guarantee the event occurring. Now, an atom decay event may be considered spontaneous, but it is not absolutely uncaused. To be absolutely uncaused in the relevant sense here, it must not have any non-logical, necessary, or sufficient conditions at all. Now, in order to make any sort of objection to the first premise here, one has to assume that uncaused means unpredictable in principle. That's the only way to make the jump from the quantum uncertainty to denying the first premise. Now, Qu Quentin Smith is an atheist philosopher who has tried to make this argument. By assuming that uncaused merely means unpredictable in principle, he has argued that quantum events are a true counterexample to the first premise of the cosmological argument. However, even though philosophers are a long way off from agreeing on a generally accepted account of causality, Smith's definition is extremely controversial and highly implausible. In fact, it can be shown to be false because we can easily imagine a world in which something is unpredictable in principle, even though it is caused. Now, you may recall the Bohmian interpretation of quantum mechanics, according to which there are hidden variables which determine quantum states. Well, even if this interpretation is wrong, it is at least logically possible. And it is logically possible that these hidden variables might be, in principle, unobservable. Now, this serves as a clear counterexample to Smith's notion that unpredictability in principle is the same thing as uncaused. Now, once we reject this spurious definition of causality, we can also reject the notion that atom decay constitutes a real counterexample to the first premise of the Kalam cosmological argument. Mimi 
down in Victoria Station, London time. All right, well, that wraps up just about everything for this episode of the Skeptical Christian Podcast. Uh, thanks for listening in. I would like to take this opportunity to remind you again that I encourage feedback for the show, and so if you have a question or a comment, I would encourage you to send me an email at kyle at skepticalchristian.com. Uh, you can also visit the podcast blog uh, from the skepticalchristian.com homepage. It's in the main navigation. Click on podcast. Uh, here you can find transcripts of all the different episodes. And there's also a, uh, the ability to leave comments um, on each episode or ask questions uh, to be answered in upcoming shows. I also have one favor to ask. Uh, if you get the chance and if you really enjoy listening to this podcast, uh, please just leave me a review on the iTunes Music Store. That's all for the Skeptical Christian Podcast, episode number five. Thanks for joining me.